the grass withers and the flower falls, but our God's word abides forever. Uh, it gives strength to those who hear it in faith. It gives life to those who repent and seek it in Jesus Christ. And so let us give our attention to the reading of it. But we do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that those who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So ends the reading of our God's word. Let us ask his blessing on our time in it today. Heavenly Father, eternal God, you have told us that our flesh is like the grass. It is a breath and then it is gone. But in our hands we hold something that was around long before us and will be around long after us. Something that is eternal, your word that abides forever. And so we ask that you would grant that we might give our undivided attention to it. That we would be receptive to all that it has to say. And that our beliefs, our understandings, and our expectations would all be brought into accord with your word. This we ask in the name of your Son, who is the Word made flesh, Jesus Christ our Savior. Amen. Uh, You may be seated. Well, we're continuing our study through 1 Thessalonians. And my plan is to finish it up in the next two Sundays, the 20th and the 27th, uh, before I leave on sabbatical. And that means we'll be looking at it at the camp out next week uh, and then the next passage. Um, and in many ways, this book is simple. It's, it's about a people who are suffering. The, the, the Christians in the town of Thessalonica were enduring hard times. They were being persecuted for their faith. They were losing status in society. They were losing friendships. They were losing relationships with family. And the one who led them to faith, the Apostle Paul, he's been gone for a long time and unable to return. And so the people, the Christians there at this church in Thessalonica, they feel alone and they feel exhausted and they feel beat down and discouraged and quite frankly, scared. And Paul loves them. He sacrificed much to minister to them, to bring God's word to them. He has prayed for them. He has cared for them. And he desperately loves them like a parent and longs to be with them. But he's been prevented, and so he sent uh, his co-laborer, Timothy, to them. And now he's written them a short letter, a short but, but packed letter, telling them what they need to hear most. 
He's taking them back to the basics of Christianity, back to the foundation, to, to faith and to love and to hope. And he believes that these three things are essential for them to hold on to if they are not to despair and to grow more discouraged. And he thinks that, that helping them remember and understand these things will give them the strength and the courage they need to face the adversity, face the persecution, face the trials that they are enduring. And so in chapters 2 and 3, he talked about faith. The first of those three things, faith. Not just their faith, but the great cost that Paul and Timothy and Tite, or sorry, Silas paid to bring the gospel to them. He reminds them of the cost they counted in order to place their faith in Jesus Christ. They know how important their faith is. They've counted it worth more than their earthly lives, more than their earthly comfort. And and so Paul sent Timothy in his stead to, to comfort them in the midst of their trials, to comfort them while they await Christ's return. And from there he moved on. And last week we saw this in the beginning of chapter 4. He moved on to the second thing. He moved from faith to love. And he says that if the Holy Spirit lives in them, their bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. And their bodies are therefore holy. And that must affect how they use their bodies. Not just for themselves, but for their brethren. And so they are to walk and live in love. And that means they are to walk in holiness. They are to avoid sexual immorality uh, and, and other sins. And that means they are to walk in love towards one another. Guarding each other's holiness. And Paul has more to say about walking in love. He's not done yet. And he's going to return to what it means to walk in love in in the final passage that we're going to look at on the 27th, uh, chapter 5, verses 12 to 28. But but before that, it's, it's like he interrupts himself. He can't wait to get to that third thing, hope. He's dealt with faith, he's introduced love, but he interrupts himself and he starts to talk about their hope. And, and there's a reason he interrupts himself. Because he sees a connection to what we saw last week about their bodies being temples of the Holy Spirit and something that they are wrestling with. A fear that has crept into the church in Thessalonica. They're thinking that you actually still have to be alive when Jesus returns if you are to be taken up into heaven. And so dying before his return was terrifying because it would mean there was no hope of spending eternity with Jesus in heaven. And so imagine the grief they're experiencing about all their loved ones who have passed away and they're thinking, we won't see them in eternity because they weren't able to to stay alive until Jesus returns. Imagine how troubled their hearts would be. And imagine what kind of lives this would encourage them to live. Because if you have to be alive when Jesus returns in order to go to heaven, you would do everything necessary to hold on to your earthly life. If that's your only hope, living until he returns, you would hold on to your earthly life at all costs. And your personal safety would become the most important thing to you. 
And yet that's so contradictory to what Jesus said. Remember what he told his disciples. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And so Paul understands that this air of thinking that has crept in is not only going to discourage them, but lead them away from lives of love for one another. Because all they'll do is worry about protecting their own lives and not serving others. And he sees the answer to their error actually as being the implication for what he's just told them about the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. That their bodies are holy. And and his answer is something like this. It's our main point this morning. Because our bodies are holy, death cannot have the final word. Our bodies must be raised up to join Jesus Christ on the last day. Because our bodies are holy, because they're the temple of the Holy Spirit, God can't be done with them when we die. And so... uh, That's what he wants to explain to them. That's what he wants to draw out for them. That's why he kind of puts the discussion of of living lives of love for one another on hold and turns to the issue of hope and their their concerns about the future. So uh, what we're going to do is we're going to look at first the hope of the resurrection. And then we're going to look at what this will look like and address the idea that has uh, become popular today of a secret rapture that people actually use this passage to try to defend. And then finally we're we're going to see uh, how we are called to encourage one another out of these truths while we await the return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's our plan. That's our, our direction this morning. But let's start with the hope of the resurrection. Paul begins by addressing the grief that they are experiencing, and he does so by pointing to them that, to that hope, that hope of the resurrection. He says that, that we, we Christians, do not grieve as those without hope. Now, first, and, and this is really important... You have to read the entire sentence. There's no period after the word grieve. Paul does not say, we do not grieve, period. Christians grieve. God grieves. Grief is the appropriate response to the pains of a fallen world. There is no period after the word grieve. What he says is that our grief is not without hope. And that's a big difference. We grieve, but unlike the world, we grieve with hope. In other words, our grief is temporary. Our grief is not final. Paul says we have a hope. Now, he calls it a hope not because it's a wish, right, but because it's future. When the Bible talks about hope, it's not saying, I don't know what's going to happen, but I hope it's good. (laughs) The Bible uses hope to refer to future things that God has promised. Because it's based upon God's word to us, it's not a possibility, but a guaranteed promise. So when he says hope, he means we have a confidence about the future. And that confidence is that before those who are alive, when Jesus returns, go to join him in heaven, that those Christians who have preceded them in death will first be raised bodily, physically from the grave. They will be resurrected. How could they not be? 
Because their bodies are holy. Their bodies are, are temples of the Holy Spirit. And God's temples can be destroyed, but He always rebuilds them. He never leaves them in ruins. And so it is with our bodies. They're His. They belong to Him. They've been marked out as holy, and so they must rise again. God cannot abandon His temples to the grave forever. And that means when you die, you are not done with your body. Uh, There's these thoughts that have crept into God's church... That our bodies are evil. Like when, when, when we talk about warring against the flesh, it means our physical bodies. That's not what the flesh is. It's our sinful nature that the, that the Bible is addressing. People think that uh, you've heard maybe even at Christian funerals, when they look at the, the body in the casket, that's not him. He's not here. As if the body is something to be delivered from. That's not Christian. That's pagan. This is why Christians have historically rejected cremation. Because we're not done with our bodies. You don't burn a seed before you plant it. You plant the seed expecting something to come out of the ground. This is why Christians have wanted burials to be done with honor. Because the grave is temporary. This is our confidence about the future. We will not just have bodies in heaven. We will have the same bodies in heaven, albeit glorified, perfected, and transformed. We've had a lot of discussions around our, uh, our, our family table this week reading this passage. Uh, will it be scary when our bodies come out of the grave? No. They will be glorified, transformed, beautiful, like what, what Peter and James and John saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. Your body is not incidental to who you are. It is not a prison that you need to escape. It is part of you, and it will be with you for all eternity in heaven. And this is why Paul refers to those in the grave as sleeping in verses 13 and 15. He means death. He doesn't just mean, you know, I know your uncle's old and he fell asleep. That's not what it's... It means those who have died. And that becomes clear in verse 16. But the Bible doesn't like to say that Christians die. And there's a reason for that. Because, because death is the penalty for sin, for rebellion. Death is a curse. It's a punishment. And for Christians, the punishment has been removed. The debt has been paid by Jesus. And no judgment remains for us. And so Paul calls going to the grave sleeping. He does that in several of his letters. And and, and the answer is because he will wake up again. We will wake up again. Uh, Jesus did the same thing with Lazarus. We need to go see our friend Lazarus. He fell asleep. Lord, he'll wake up. Well, he's dead. But he'll, he'll rise again. In Revelation, John actually calls bodily death the first resurrection and, and the physical resurrection the second resurrection because the Bible doesn't like to say Christians die. Because those who have fallen asleep, who are Christians, are secure in Christ. In fact, so secure that Paul gives them the priority at the day of the resurrection. Twice he says, they must be raised first. They must be caught up to the Lord first, and then we join them. 
He's addressing this concern that those who have died or fallen asleep are without hope. And he says, not at all. Not only do they have hope, they have priority over those of us who remain alive at Jesus' return. Because they've suffered the ultimate loss. They, their own lives. They, more than those uh, who remain alive at Jesus, those who have fallen asleep have even borne with Jesus the passing from this life into death. And so they rightfully deserve a greater honor because they have suffered more. And so they will precede those of us who remain alive into glory. This is how the Bible always works. Priority always goes to those who suffer the most. Not to those who have the greatest comfort. Paul's assuring them that God cares deeply about those who have suffered, those who have died, those who await the resurrection. So what do the scriptures have in mind about what this will look like? Well, it's clear that it's no secret rapture. Uh, This passage has been been used to defend a newer notion of of a secret rapture where Christians are taken out of this world prior to uh, a time of tribulation and possibly earthly glory. Uh, The term rapture is based upon how the word in verse 18 translated caught up is translated in the Latin. But the word in the original is a common word in the New Testament and it can be uh, used to refer to those forced to do something or those who are uh, removed or are better translated snatched away. Like we heard in our declaration of pardon. Is this not a brand plucked, snatched out of the fire? That's what's in view here. That's what, what Jude and Revelation use this word for. Christians being snatched out of judgment, delivered from wrath, protected from God's terrible judgment. It's not some secret event preceding the last day, the return of Jesus. This is the return of Jesus. At the coming of Jesus, it says. And that's where 1 Thessalonians has been pressing since chapter 1. Most passages we have looked at have in some way made reference to the appearing or the coming of Jesus. Verse 15 has already made it clear that that's what's in view. And it's going to be visible for the entire world. He'll be coming on the clouds, and that's not referring to the clouds we're used to seeing. These are like the clouds that Pastor Isaac uh, described a couple weeks ago in chapter uh, in Exodus 19. Uh, you want to see what it looks like. Uh, uh, search for a, uh, a volcanic storm online and look at the pictures. Terrifying dark clouds. This is what accompanies God's judgment. This is what Israel witnessed at Mount Sinai and made them tremble in fear. Something that Hebrews 12 says uh, anticipates and prefigures the last day. It, it's, it's, a, it's an image so terrifying that the, the Jews uh, begged that God would stop speaking to them. And there in the midst of those clouds, they heard trumpets. 
Uh, Trumpets were heard in the Old Testament in times of war and in times of deliverance. Both of those. Uh, So Numbers talks about trumpets being used in summonsing uh, God's people to battle. Uh, Exodus warns of death for any who dare to enter God's presence in an unworthy manner. But, but trumpets also announced God's jubilee. They announced uh, the Day of Atonement, both of which were tied to forgiveness and deliverance. And so the trumpets have this mixed imagery in the Bible that judgment is coming, but forgiveness is possible. What a beautiful image to, to bring us to the last day. Because that's how the last day is described, as a battle. And that's why Jesus' voice is described like that of an archangel. Uh, Michael the archangel, uh, or the ruler of the angel, is the Bible's term for Jesus in battle. It is Jesus as a warrior, coming to conquer. He's come for war. That's why the trumpets sound. And he's coming in judgment. And Peter tells us that when he does, the world will be engulfed, engulfed in fire and nothing will remain. And out of the present creation, an entirely new creation will emerge. Not a restoration of Eden, but, but everything Eden hoped to become. As much better as an oak tree is from a tiny acorn, that's how much better the new creation will be than the original creation before sin ever entered the picture. Far more glorious, far more beautiful. We struggle to imagine Eden, and God says, it doesn't hold a candle to what I'm bringing. But first, this creation will be absolutely and utterly consumed by fire. And chapter 1, verse 12, told us, That Jesus is also the one who delivers us from wrath. So not only is he the one who comes in battle with the shout of an archangel, but he's the one to come to deliver us out of judgment. And so just before he pours out judgment on the last day, he will first raise the bodies of those who have preceded us in death, and then he will snatch those who remain before the fires of judgment come. We are brands literally plucked from the fire. That's what's being described here. Not something preceding the judgment by years, but by seconds. It's the last day. It's the final judgment. It is the end. And Paul's point is that when Jesus comes, he will rescue not just those who are living, and not just those who who are still alive that have placed their trust in Jesus Christ, but all who have fallen asleep and placed their trust in Jesus Christ. And lie in the grave. And he will not lose one. They will be raised up, we are told in John 6, on the last day. And this is why we don't grieve as those without hope. Because we know how it ends. It doesn't mean we don't grieve, it doesn't mean that it's not hard, it doesn't mean that it's not sad. But our tears will be dried. They will not remain forever. Our grief is temporary. We know that judgment and death will not have the final words for those who belong to Jesus Christ.
For us, the last day is, is not a terrifying day of judgment, but a glorious day of jubilee. For us, the trumpets aren't warning of, uh, 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 of battle. For us, the trumpets are announcing forgiveness, deliverance. But this still leaves another question, and it's this. But aren't we sinners? Why isn't it a day of terror for us as well? Don't we deserve death every bit and more so than everybody else? And that, the answer to that question is found in our passage and it tells us how we can encourage one another while we await this return. I mentioned earlier that the Bible doesn't like to say that Christians die. It's not afraid to, but it doesn't like to because it doesn't want us to, to see our death as, as a curse, as punishment, as judgment, and as permanent. We're not exempt from death. Our bodies are not immune to age and disease and injury and decay. But for us, death is temporary because it's not God's judgment for us, but more like a nap while we await the return of Jesus. So here's the question Why then does verse 14 say that Jesus died? If the Bible doesn't like to say that Christians die, why doesn't it say that Jesus fell asleep? Why doesn't, he, he, why doesn't Paul guard Jesus the same way he guards us from that language of judgment? And the answer is simple. Because Jesus was not protected from judgment. Because Jesus did die. This is how he protects us from the fires of judgment. He enters them for us and bears them on our behalf. Jesus died to save us from death. He suffered the judgment we deserved so that we don't have to. He died so that we don't need to fear death. He was not protected from wrath. He was not snatched from it. He endured it completely in order to snatch us from it. But he did not stay dead. He would have if he had any sin of his own. But he rose again as proof that he had no sin. And that his sacrifice on our behalf had been accepted. And so his resurrection was a vindication of his perfect holiness. And it serves as our confidence that if the grave could not hold him... Neither will it be able to hold those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. That's why in verse 14, Paul says, We believe that Jesus rose from, uh, died and rose again, rather than we know. He says, we believe. Uh, Paul's not saying, well, it's not true, but we believe it. <laughs> That's not why he chooses the word believe. He's contrasting the difference between knowledge and faith. The demons know that Jesus rose from the dead, but they have no faith in him. They have no trust in him. Paul's saying, that's not us. We not only know our faith, our hope, our confidence, our trust is in Jesus who died and rose again on our behalf. We've put our faith in him. We've put our trust in him. And because of that, we belong to him. And because of that, we do not need to fear the last day.
Christians are those who believe that Jesus lived a perfect life and suffered death in our place in order to save us and that he rose again and that his resurrection gives us confidence that death cannot hold us. And so it's not surprising that the two rituals that Jesus left for his church are both pictures of his death. Baptism and the Lord's Supper, uh, which we're going to witness both of in just a few minutes, are both reminders that Jesus died and rose again for our salvation. Uh, They remind us where our hope is. And, And they do so so that we would grieve, but not as those without hope, but that we would grieve in hope. So baptism proclaims, not just to us, but to our children as well, where our hope is found. That it's found in Jesus' willingness to suffer death in our place. And so we will have four children brought forward in just a few minutes. Uh, Magnolia, or Maggie, uh, Bryant, and her brothers, Malachi and uh, Judah, and Joseph Darnell, are all going to be brought forward by their parents in just a few minutes. And, and baptism doesn't save our children, but it proclaims to them what does. Jesus, who willingly suffered in our place. Jesus, who will come on the last day and snatch us out of the fire and take us home to be with him. And so baptism doesn't just proclaim this to our children, but it also calls our children to faith. This is your hope. Trust in this Jesus. Don't just know this is true, but believe in him and you will be saved. it's a benefit not just to those who are baptized but all of us who witness it because it reminds us of the bigger picture it reminds us that there is a day coming when all things will be set right but until that time our world is filled with grief Christians and non-Christians both grieve but we do not grieve as those who have no hope And that's how we can, as verse 18 says, encourage one another with these words. In the midst of our pain, in the midst of our grief, we are called to encourage each other. And encouragement doesn't mean changing the subject to something happy. Uh, Encouragement doesn't mean pretending that life isn't hard. And it certainly doesn't mean quoting the Annie soundtrack, telling them the sun will come out tomorrow and that life will just get better. We are to encourage one another with these words. We grieve, brothers and sisters, but not as those without hope. We weep with those who weep, and we enter into their grief, and in sober love and humility, we point them to the hope of the resurrection. That we have a faithful Savior who loves us. And who is coming on the clouds with the sound of trumpets and the voice of the archangel. And he will snatch us out of judgment. Whether, Whether we have fallen asleep or are still awake, he will take us up to his eternal home. And he will dry every tear. That is our hope. That is our comfort. And that is why we grieve with hope. And please bow with me in prayer.
Father, we thank you that we do not grieve as those without hope. We thank you for your promises, for the knowledge of what awaits us on the last day, so that whether we sleep or are still awake, our hope is secure in Jesus Christ. We long for that day when he will come on the clouds, when he shall give a mighty shout, and we hear that trumpet, and he calls us home. Even so we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus.